This is Quack Talks, a podcast about voices and vocal health for singers, actors, vocal performers, fitness instructors, really anyone who uses or loves the voice. I'm Paul Quack. I'm a laryngologist and laryngeal surgeon in New York City, and I spend my days taking care of and thinking about voices and the human beings who use and inhabit them. This podcast is designed to empower vocal athletes with knowledge through conversations with some of my most brilliant colleagues who are experts in topics on vocal health. My guest for this episode is Dr. Abraham Khan, a great colleague at NYU Langone Health and a foremost expert on the topic of gastroesophageal reflux. One of the things I love about Abe is that in addition to being such a clinical and academic powerhouse, he's so lucid and reasonable and straightforward which is why I'm especially glad he's with me here to talk about reflux, a topic about which there's often so much unreasonable and muddy false guidance out there. I find that reflux has become something much larger than itself in our collective consciousness. It's really hard to know what's true and how to navigate all the information. It's it's really so much harder than you might think to find good, reliable information from an expert on this topic, which is why we're here in this episode. One of the things I struggle with most in my clinic is how to answer the question for each patient, how does reflux affect the voice? So I hope what you'll see as we have this discussion here is that that answer is not always straightforward or simple, and that it's actually incredibly individual. Mostly because, as with most things in medicine, the answers are more gray than black and white. But with reflux, perhaps even more so than with other topics in this podcast, the the very definitions are complex. What is it? How do we define it? How do we test and prove that it's there? What's the difference between gastroesophageal reflux, which is GERD, and laryngopharyngeal reflux, LPR? So we start this discussion by talking about, indeed, what reflux is. How do we define it? How do we name or call it? How did this condition that arises from and in the stomach become responsible for everything that goes wrong with the throat? And then we spend some time talking about testing, what the different types of tests are, how they're done, what they mean, and what they can tell us, and then what they can't tell us. And then I asked Dr. Khan about diet, that multi-million dollar industry that frankly creates so much insanity about what everyone should eat and what everyone shouldn't eat. And finally, we talk a bit about why singers may be more vulnerable to reflux than non-singers. Honestly, we could talk about reflux for hours, literally, but I hope this half hour or so starts to provide you with some insights into the truth of what we know about it and its relationships to and connections to the voice, which are sometimes less linear than internet sound bites would have you believe. So I'm delighted to have in this episode of Quack Talks to start to discuss reflux, Dr. Abraham Khan. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Abraham Khan. I'm medical director of the Center for Esophageal Health and very happy to be here. Thanks for joining me for this fairly hot topic in voice. You know, we were just sort of chatting about how it seems to me, just as my perspective from an, as an ENT, reflux has just sort of become this kind of monster in our practice. And people have all kinds of conceptions, perhaps misconceptions mm-hmm. about it. Uh, and you deal with it all day, every day, um, perhaps from a gastroesophageal level. But Uh, We share a lot of patients, but we don't get to like sort of sit down and talk about some of the 
you know, the kind of the basic principles behind it. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to get to just sort of chat with you about this today. I, I wonder if you have some insight about, for lack of a better phrase, how we got here. How did it become that GERD evolved or morphed into including LPR? What What's kind of your, your sense of that as a, as a gastroenterologist? Yeah, I, I think these are very great concepts to discuss. I think, you know, the definition of GERD has always been something we've accepted, but it's been intentionally vague. And the definition really is the reflux of gastric contents coming up into the esophagus or higher structures, causing troublesome symptoms and or complications. Yeah. And, you know, that vagueness, I think, is valuable because it takes away some of the preconceptions that, for instance, you have to have heartburn to have GERD. Yeah. But it also opens up sort of Pandora's box a little bit that mm -hmm. a lot of symptoms that may not be due to GERD, you know, can be assumed to be due to GERD as well. Well, I th I'm glad you said it, said it that way because I think the D part, the GR, G gastroesophageal reflux disease refers to the fact that it's causing symptoms, right? So is it is it true that kind of everyone has some measure of gastroesophageal reflux and it's just sort of, does it manifest symptoms, then it becomes disease or is that? Yeah, I think, you know, the symptoms and or complications mm. was put in there because there are known patients in the esophagus, let's say, that have complications from GERD, but don't complain of any symptoms. Yeah. Now, I would say that's relatively rare to have no symptoms after a detailed history. Mm -hmm. But the question is great because, you know, in terms of gastroesophageal reflux, we all should have gastroesophageal reflux. And sort of the normal physiology of the esophagus and stomach really entails that when the food, liquid, or pills are passed down the esophagus, usually over about eight to 10 seconds with a swallow, they have to go through a valve called the lower esophageal sphincter, which should open to allow for that full passage while you're swallowing, but then remain closed otherwise to prevent reflux. Now, all of us have that valve open without swallowing sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, so the manner in which that opens in terms of allowing reflux to come up can differ patient to patient. The frequency of the episodes of how often it opens during the day or at night can also vary. And some patients, it can open a fair amount, but they may not even have a lot of reflux come up when it does. Mm. And the nature of the shape of the stomach may be important there. So the mechanisms behind reflux can definitely vary patient to patient. You sure. Know? And then patients' experiences of that can vary widely. Right. And that becomes relevant in the throat you know, uh, when it when it sort of comes all the way up to the throat. And you mentioned the lower esophageal sphincter. This I was sort of going to talk with you in a cluster about this later, but I think that is one kind of interesting part of the singing complex, that when singers sort of work on breath, a lot of that has to do with sort of modulation of the action of the diaphragm. Mm -hmm. And the incorporation kind of of the lower esophageal musculature into that kind of ring. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that yeah. interacts there? Yeah, the, the apparatus of the lower esophageal sphincter, you know, is interesting because it's so dynamic. You know, the LES muscle, the lower esophageal 
sphincter, intrinsic muscle going from esophagus to stomach, as I said, opens and closes with swallowing, it should be a normal anatomy anchored by the diaphragm, which of course is involved in respiration. Right. So it really ties right. together, you know, the pulmonary system with the GI system. Yeah very closely. Um, and a lot of the research into the lower esophageal sphincter apparatus, which would include the diaphragm being dysfunctional, has to do with whether it's really the diaphragm component uh -huh. or is it the intrinsic yeah. smooth muscle of the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, and that becomes important if we're ever considering a more aggressive treatment for reflux, such as surgery. Yeah, okay. So, um, as we sort of started to talk about, you know, you work a lot kind of in the in the thorax and the abdomen. Yeah. And I work a lot up in the throat. Oh, and, you know, maybe, I don't know, was it like 15 to 20 years ago, people had never heard or named LPR. Right. And now, you know, people talk a lot about laryngopharyngeal reflux, silent reflux, posterior laryngitis. And from my perspective, you know, the way people kind of classically dif differentiate those two is that the concept is that the reflux, the acid kind of comes all the way up the esophagus mm -hmm. to irritate the posterior larynx yeah. and create symptoms which are different. Mm -hmm. Now, that's always seemed a little bit kind of I don't know. It it didn't always make a lot of sense to me mm -hmm. that you would have so much acid kind of coming up from the stomach to create sort of clinical effects in the throat. Mm -hmm. And the data for me is a little bit mm -hmm. kind of vague on that. Um, and I suppose that leads a little bit into my questions for you about how we test and how we know that patients are actually having Right. Like, is that really a thing? Yeah, it's a really important question, and it gets to several topics, you know, in terms of testing options, treatment options to try to figure out if you're convinced the symptoms are due to reflux. You know, and even the testing options, you know, I think there's still a lot to do to try to really be more confident that some of those throat symptoms are due to reflux yep. or not. Yep. You know, the available tests we have primarily look at liquid acid versus non-acid or weak acid contents coming up mm -hmm. and seeing if we're convinced on tests that they're coming all the way up. Uh, so that gets into something called pH testing. Yeah. Tell, tell us all about that. Yeah. So <laughs> there's several different types of pH tests and there's been some advancements over the years. Yeah. You know, one of the main pH tests that we do on an upper endoscopy, so the upper endoscopy is where we're putting the camera in, looking at the esophagus and stomach. And at that time, we can, usually under sedation, we can look to see if there's any damage or complications from reflux. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, most people with reflux don't have significant complications. Right. You know, so if we're in there and we don't really see any inflammation, you know, in the esophagus or we don't see anything like Barrett's esophagus, which is a precancerous condition, it doesn't mean the patient doesn't have reflux. It just means that fortunately they haven't had any damage from whatever reflux they yeah. have. So if that's all we do is an upper endoscopy in a reflux patient, unless we find some other major finding like a hiatal hernia, uh -huh. where that LES muscle is pushing up through the yeah. diaphragm yeah. with the stomach coming up, 
we're really not getting a great understanding on how much reflux they're mm -hmm. having, mm -hmm. especially since, as we discussed, the sensitivity from reflux can vary so much patient to patient. Right. And just to clarify, so when you're doing that in, yeah. in endoscopy, you're you're looking, right? I mean, you're looking at the, muco the mucosa yeah. and making a, a call about does right. it look inflamed? Is that... Yeah. And there are findings that would tell us that we think this patient definitely has pathologic reflux disease. Such as? Significant esophagitis. Okay. And that can be graded on certain scales. Right. You know, one of the common ones called the Los Angeles classification yeah. or LA classification, where it's A, B, C, D, with C and D being more severe. Yeah. If the patient has C or D esophagitis and there's no other explanation, we're going to think that's significant acid reflux disease, yeah. all right? And then Barrett's esophagus, the precancerous condition where there's a cell change is another, you know, significant finding. Now, as I said, fortunately, you take all comers with possible reflux. Mm -hmm. Most people won't have those things. Yeah. And that's when we think about a pH test called a wireless pH capsule. And we attach a very small capsule about five centimeters above that lower esophageal sphincter to sort of standardize where we're gonna do measurements, it sticks there. It'll stay on there for an average of five or so days and transmit data to a recorder wirelessly on That's the outside amazing. of the body. So you put it in during the endoscopy? Yeah, we yeah. put it in during the endoscopy. You shouldn't need another endoscopy to remove it because it should sit on there and then eventually fall off and come out of the body with a bowel movement, usually a week or so later. That's amazing. So, so no more wires in the nose. For that one, yeah, we'll get into the wire one. We'll get into the uh, you know the other test shortly, I'm sure. But for this one, yeah, that is a big advantage. Is nothing is coming out of the mouth or nose. Yeah. Okay. For patients, there is a small chance they'll feel the capsule, but it's usually minimally felt. Mm -hmm. um, and during the next four days, as they go about their entire routine, which eating habits, sleeping habits, everything can be similar, they just carry the cap, the recorder around. Yeah. You know, within a few feet of their chest, it can be next to the bed, outside the shower, brought with them to exercise. You know, really anything they're doing besides really swimming can actually be done. And then we're trying to understand the quantity of acid reflux. Yeah. Now, the key thing on that test is it's only acid reflux. Yeah. So you and may miss other types of reflux, let's say bile reflux. Okay you know, material, um, which is rarely an independent problem unrelated to acid, mm. but it is possible. Uh, and so you're looking at acid reflux and you can really vary the diet for four days. So what we do is we have patients for one of those four days be on a high acid diet. They add things that traditionally we say, you know, don't do if you have reflux, mm -hmm. which may or may not be a problem for each individual patient, such as tomato sauce, you know, caffeinated things, all of those things. And then one day we give them a list of bland foods, low acid foods. And then we try to see what amount of reflux is coming up. Now, since the capsule is not up in the throat, yeah. you have to make a pretty big presumption about throat symptoms yeah. related to reflux. And that gets into the statistics and looking at the frequency of symptoms during those four days and the amount of reflux and do they coordinate by timing? Yeah. Let's say we see somebody have significant acid reflux one night and then the next morning they're hoarse or they have throat clearing coughing. You know, there's certain presumptions and things you can do to really try to say, am I confident that that was due to the reflux or at night? Yeah. And that gets into sort of the individual factors of the test and there's certain confidence levels 
Sure. That might make us particularly, you know, convinced that a throat symptom is due to acid reflux or not. I see. So you, so with the capsule, you have them keep kind of a journal yeah. about what's happening. It's a whole thing. They have yeah. homework, you know, with the little diary, write down their meals for four days. The recorder has also buttons to press when they're eating. Oh, interesting. When they're lying down and okay. when they have symptoms. Okay. So they can automatically, you know, if they start coughing, press a button immediately. And then oh, later we're going to cool. see was acid coming up before that, you know, and like I was saying, you know, the analysis is really focused on that part with yeah. the symptoms versus the reflux. But the capsule's in one one location. Right? Exactly. So so then, you know, w when I was training, you know, like mm -hmm. 400 years ago, we always learned about the dual pH probe, right? And, yeah. and it, like one sat kind of higher up and one sat kind of lower. Yeah, down. yeah. That's the other main test we have, which we now use something called pH impedance. Mm -hmm. So this is a very small catheter. It's only about one millimeter in diameter. Um, so, you know, is it completely comfortable? Not for every patient, but, you know, to be honest, more annoying than uncomfortable yeah. even. Yeah. Because this tiny catheter has to go through your nose into the stomach. We yeah. tape it up at the nose, cheek, and around the ear at the neck and it's directly attached to a recorder. Yeah. Now, the big advantage of this one over the other one is you have a lot more sensors going up and down. Yeah. So the impedance sensors look at liquid acid or air movement, really, you know, um, and liquid or air movement, and there's eight of them up and down, and then there is a pH or acid sensor either in the lower esophagus and stomach, or you can do one where it's in the upper esophagus and lower esophagus. Yeah, right. And there's a variety of those catheters. So between the liquid and air movement and the acid pH sensor, you get much more information about that day of reflux. Yeah. But because the patient can't really shower because of the tape on their face, yeah. it's really a one-day test yeah. that practically... Um, so you can't vary the diet as much like the other one. You know, that being said, the liquid movement sensor is going up towards the pharynx. Mm -hmm. You know, if you see a lot of that yep. before coughing or throat clearing yep. or hoarseness, now maybe you're going to be more convinced yes. that the reflux is related to that. So, you know, we don't often do both tests. Yep. You know, a lot of it comes down to the individual, the frequency of their symptoms, how confident we would be that a one-day test would pick up enough symptoms to do an analysis. Yeah. Um, or if we really need to vary the diet over several days, and maybe they need an endoscopy anyways. Yeah. All of that factors into choosing one or the other. I, well, I appreciate you talking through all of that because I think it illustrates actually a point which I make often to patients, which is that gastroenterologists test this in many more quantitative ways than we do as ENTs, mm -hmm. right? Basically what I do as an ENT to diagnose reflux, I'm using air quotes, is we do laryngoscopy and we look at the posterior larynx, the back of the larynx. And we be, we ultimately make some subjective call about, does it look swollen? Does it look red back there? Mm -hmm. And that is how I supposedly make a determination mm -hmm. about whether a patient right. has reflux. And then the link to the voice for me is even more obtuse because yeah. it's not like, you know, I don't know what people kind of think must be happening when, mm -hmm. re when they say reflux affects the throat, but it's not like the acid is like spilling over the top of the larynx and like mm -hmm. burning the vocal folds. Mm -hmm. But this is why it's just helpful to sort of talk all this out, to sort of understand yeah. 
what do we actually think is yeah. going on here? So I really rely on you and your team to give us some data about that. And and I, I do think kind of as I alluded to earlier, we ENTs like kind of co-opted this part of the practice like mm-hmm. in the past 15 to 20 years. And I think it has created, reflux has become our kind of garbage can diagnosis for when mm-hmm. a singer has something wrong and right. there's nothing wrong with the vocal fold. Right, right. So I think it's just really important to be careful about that and the advice that we get. And so that's why mm-hmm. it's great to have this talk. Now, you mentioned diet. Mm-hmm. I would love your thoughts on this kind of like multi-million dollar industry about yeah. like kind of reflux diets, re- uh-huh. low acid, high acid, yeah. you know, what what are your thoughts about dietary modifications and how and when a patient yeah, should be yeah. thinking about those? Yeah, and the, it's a great question. And I will say, you know, in regards to your prior comments, I do think the collaboration is very important for us too. Totally. You know, with those throat symptoms and ruling out alternative diagnoses and you discussing the limitations of laryngoscopy yeah. are this really the same limitations we have on endoscopy sure. if we don't find a really obvious finding. You know, so that's where those pH tests and everything come into play. Yeah, diet, it's a great question. You know, I think some patients come to us and every new patient that comes to me, you know, we go over the anatomy and all of this with diagrams. We talk about the pH tests, you know, and then we really come to, you know, a decision on what to do. Now, oftentimes, I would say, unless it's very clear that the patient has triggers, I don't personally use a one-size-fits-all approach. I I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. And, you know, I think patients end up understanding that because when we go over mechanisms of reflux, it makes sense to them because I tell them some people it's overeating, the stomach distends, that lower esophageal sphincter valve opens, and that's why they reflux. And it doesn't, you know, it could be chocolate, tomato sauce, it could be wine with a meal, but it may not be. It could be totally. something extremely bland, but they overeat and that's why they reflux. The other really interesting thing to me is the acidic beverages. Let's say you have black coffee, for instance. It's a very low pH. That low pH drink, the patient may be sipping that for 30 minutes. Now, it is true that they that may cause irritation of the stomach and then may cause reflux after. But the patient may just be sensitive to the low pH coffee on the way down Mm. as well. And so that coffee may not be a reflux trigger, but may still cause similar symptoms of reflux while they're drinking. Totally. And irritation chronically to the lining that maybe makes them prone to more symptoms with minimal reflux later. Right. I'm so glad you went coffee because I happen to love coffee. And it would be very hard for me to live without coffee. But, you know, not infrequently we have patients come in and they're like, I cut out coffee, I cut out red wine, right. I cut out all citrus, I cut out spicy foods, I cut out pasta sauce. And I'm yeah. like, well, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of living at that point? And I, I am fond of saying, you know, like, just the same way I would never stand here and just hand everyone a, right. a proton pump inhibitor right. without sort of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I think kind of that same kind of just sort of blanket diet advice. Yes. Yeah is pretty faulty too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think fortunately for me, when I see a patient, they've often done a lot of things already with their diet. Maybe they've had advice from other practitioners. So we already have a pretty good history about what clearly works and doesn't work. 
you know, and then I'll give you an example of that 96 hour, four day wireless pH study. So during that four days, while the patient's eating, because they're recording that, we're not detecting reflux because it's too hard to know if things are going down or coming up, Mm. but they're still recording symptoms. So let's say they're having a meal of, you know, coffee followed by pasta with tomato sauce. And I noticed that they're having throat clearing only during the meal. And yet after the meal, there's no reflux. Yeah. Now I'm going to be more convinced that the acidity of that diet yeah. is directly leading to the symptoms, yeah. Yeah. regardless of any reflux. And going after the acid in the stomach with medications is not going to be totally the right thing to do. Yeah. Okay. You know, so th- that's where you know I am, as you probably can see, a pretty big fan of testing. <laughs> so, you know, in these cases, you know, a lot of patients come in; they want a good long-term approach. Yeah. And they don't necessarily just want a lot of medication to make them feel better instantly without understanding totally. what they're going to do in the years ahead. Totally. Now, that that's interesting, that last thing you said about kind of long-term versus short-term. I think one of the problems we run, to, run into in the singing community is that people need kind of a fast, yeah. like they need a medicine or they want a medicine mm-hmm. to solve the problem, which is kind of the whole reason I want to have this conversation yeah. with you about kind of the, the layers of it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. like acid reflux is just but one of many things that can yeah. um, contribute. Okay, so there are a couple, just a couple, this has been wonderful. There are a couple more topics that I just wanted to hit, and I think they're shorter. Oh, talk to me a little bit about um, what, how, when should people think about coming to see a GI? Yeah. When, when do, how do we think about maybe an empiric trial of a PPI mm-hmm. versus should everyone test first? What are your thoughts about that? Right. Yeah. In particularly the throat symptom population, if they have typical symptoms of reflux, like heartburn or regurgitation, it's more likely that their throat symptoms are going to be due to gastroesophageal reflux. Mm. So that's one thing. Okay. I think just overall in seeing a GI for reflux, there are certain groups that are more likely to have complications. Mm. You know, males more than females, for instance, Caucasian men in their 40s and 50s with at least 10 years of typical reflux symptoms are at a higher risk of Barrett's esophagus. Obesity is a risk, you know, especially abdominal adiposity. So, Mm. You know, all of those things are reasons perhaps to see a GI overall just for chronic reflux. And then certainly trouble swallowing, weight loss, bleeding, anemia, along with reflux. Any of those things, you know, can be something where you really want to, you know, get a consult with a gastroenterologist for endoscopy. And then, you know, if symptoms aren't responding to minimal therapy... Um, and really, if you want a long-term approach, it's certainly another valid reason to see a gastroenterologist to try to delve into this. Totally. Now, the last thing is sort of, uh, I, I talk a lot about how singers, I think, are they're like a perfect recipe for um, like actual legitimate mm-hmm. reflux. Yeah. We talked about the lower esophageal sphincter mm-hmm. and the diaphragm, but also uh, they perform generally in the evenings. Mm-hmm. And so they generally mm-hmm. eat after the performance, which, yeah. you know, like 10, 30, 11, mm-hmm. sometimes midnight mm-hmm. and highly stressful. Yeah. Like highly yeah. stressful what they mm-hmm. do. So I wonder if you could comment on those two things, kind of timing of eating late night relationship mm-hmm. to bedtime. And then 
stress mm-hmm. and, and the axis and does that indeed kind of increase acid mm-hmm. reflux? Right. So in terms of the stimuli for acid production, you know, sometimes just being hungry actually yeah. can also stimulate the stomach to secrete acid. Stress may do that as well. Stress also may cause hypervigilance where mm. you're sort of central nervous system and brain are a little more focused on a certain area and that may heighten symptoms just by that focus. You know, we always give the example of wearing a tight watch. You know, if you're a little concerned about it all day, it might bother you all day. But, you know, if you're busy and, you know, you go about your day without thinking about it, maybe you don't feel it and you go home with a bruise on your arm. Yeah. You know, so the brain can really control and be focused on things Um, you know, in a wide variety of of sort of levels, I think. Mm. Um, So that's one thing. And I think, you know, the timing of eating, it's usually, you know, probably um, not a big deal, I would say, um, if a person is trying to schedule their their meals regularly throughout the day and not extremely hungry or doing certain activities immediately after large meals. Yeah. But that just goes down to, it really gets down to the details of the mechanism for that person. Sure. Got it. And I'm trying to understand that. So having said what I just said about one size fits all, but is there some rule of thumb in terms of like, if you have a big, you know, people always talk about you should give it two or three hours. Before yeah. Good, good. Do you have any such? I of... think for exercise, that's very important for patients, ah. you know, because there's going to be a lot more activity, you know, certainly with the diaphragm um, and more likely that they'll probably have reflux events if they're prone to that lower esophageal sphincter opening. Now, can singing do it? There's a lot of exertion there. So mm-hmm. that's something I often would want to test, you know, if they're particularly during a pH study, more prone to reflux right after a meal, if there is some exertion, even, you know, with singing um, or using, you know, the throat in, in certain ways. You know, some people, you know, what if they're going on, you know, talk show, radio, something like that for yeah. a couple hours? Yeah, yeah. Could that also be something um, where it's a trigger for them? Possibly, it would it would be interesting to study it. You know, I think mm. at most in our literature we have some epidemiological data yeah. about incidents of reflux symptoms and subjective mm-hmm. experience, but we don't have. Yeah, it'd be kind of cool. To, it would be. To yeah, test we don't have large scale studies with that. With exercise, I think we have a little bit more. Yeah, um, and using these pH studies to look at post exercise reflux, which can be a big trigger, especially for young patients doing vigorous abdominal exercise. Which is actually increasingly a singing population, mm-hmm. you know, with being so body conscious as the mm-hmm. industry evolves, I think all of those things kind of factor mm-hmm. uh, into the mix. This has been so helpful and so enlightening. Thank, thank you. Absolutely, it was great to have this discussion. Yeah, likewise. Where um, can singers find you for more information? Yeah, so our, you know, NYU Langone Health Center for Esophageal Health, you know, we have a website on there. Um, It's probably the most direct way to find us. Perfect. Dr. Khan, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks. You've been listening to Quok Talks. You can find more episodes anywhere you get your podcasts or by following us at our Instagram home, where the handle is at Quok underscore talks. That's at K-W-A-K underscore T-A-L-K-S. Or at my website, paulequok.com. Original music and sound design for this podcast is by Max Silverman. Our logo is designed by Designs by Tomiko. Thanks for listening. It's a joy to share these conversations with you.